another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Some of our longtime listeners will understand that whenever a famous person dies, we feel sad. And then we immediately go to the internet and see what horror movies have they been in. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that we can do our own special tribute to them. And uh, last month, Kirk Douglas died. Kirk Douglas was 103 years old when he died. So I'd say he's lived a pretty long and rich life. Mm. Very well known, very successful actor, uh, has spawned, literally spawned other <laughs> well known and successful actors. So here we are today doing the only horror movie really that I could find that he's done. The Fury by Brian De Palma. Kind of a nice little follow up in 1977 from Carrie, which was well received, but not quite as big blockbuster powerhouse moneymaker that he expected it to be. So he immediately did a follow-up kind of along the same themes as there, Carrie. We're still dealing with telekinesis and these kind of psychic powers, but it is a bit more of a, I don't know, a thriller, globetrotting kind of adventure takes us out of a high school and way out into the wider world with all of these other factions in play. So I think he's just trying to make a slightly bigger movie that's going to have a wide appeal, which is why I think it categorizes as a horror film. Um, but if you go to IMDb or if you go to Wikipedia, they call it a science fiction horror thriller film. And I think that's probably a little more accurate. Maybe maybe a little closer to the thriller side. There are horror elements here. There are some sci-fi elements because we're dealing with these psychic powers instead of supernatural powers, I guess. But at the end of the day, uh, this is the movie we have, and we're going to have a lot to talk about, I think. So how about you, Craig? Uh, what did you think of this movie? Had you seen it before? No, I had never seen it before. I had heard of it a little bit before my time. It came out a year or two before I was born, and so I probably just missed it for that reason. I... I'm a big fan of De Palma's Carrie, and there are certainly elements of that here. Uh, like you said, you know, Carrie was successful for the lower budget film that it was, but De Palma felt like it just didn't have the star power that it needed. I mean, Sissy Spacek went on to be a household name and very famous in her own right, but at that time, she wasn't a name, and Kirk Douglas is a huge name, and had been uh, for decades. He started out in the theater, had a successful career in the theater, uh, and then went off to serve in World War II, and I don't remember if his acting career in film started just just before that or really kind of picked up after he came back he, he hadn't really planned on making the jump to film but a friend of his a famous actress convinced him and hooked him up with an audition and he got a role and that launched you know just a huge film career uh, incredibly famous and like you said you know he's the father of uh, Kirk Douglas who is also a huge movie star. Michael's son Cameron is into films uh, now after struggling with some legal issues but yeah I mean he's this guy he's a Hollywood legend this movie you know is a little bit out of his wheelhouse and what was funny to me is I feel like they're kind of in this movie they're presenting him as almost like an action hero yeah, <laughs> uh, and even even at this point, I mean, he's he's a good looking man, um, but he was sixty one when this was filmed, and and he's starting to show his age. You know, I I 
firmly believe that he is in the physical condition in this movie to do the things that he portrays, um, but he is getting older at this point. But like you said, he lived to be 103. I guess that that was not atypical in his family. His family, I guess, uh, had a history of living long lives, and so he was no exception. And uh, just recently passed away, and of course, you know, his surviving children. I don't know how many of his boys are left. I know that suicide has also been a constant in their family, as has been addiction. So I know that he's lost uh, at least one, if not a couple of his sons to that. But his surviving family was sad, but, you know, of course they were able uh, to pay tribute to his long an illustrious life and career. So that's nice. So we just wanted to do this just to kind of pay tribute to somebody who really earned his position in Hollywood. I have a lot of respect for this guy. I, you know, I can't say that I'm a huge fan. It's not like I've seen tons of Kirk Douglas films, but you just have to respect somebody who's had that kind of longevity. And uh, this this movie, I think it's all right. Even Brian De Palma says that it's not one of his favorite movies that he's made. I think that he had a lot of ambition, and it is an ambitious movie. There's quite a lot going on. I personally found it a little bit slow, but I'm also... I, I, I have no attention span, so... <laughs> <laughs> that could just be me. <laughs> were you watching this on your computer as well while you were at work? <laughs> the second half? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, Craig and I uh, talk, actually, outside of this podcast, believe it or not. And uh, he mentioned to me uh, when he was in the middle of watching this that he was going to finish it soon. And warned me a little bit that the movie was going to be slow. So going into it, I had that that thought that maybe it was going to be a slow film. And I intentionally watched it at a time when I wasn't terribly tired because I also have very little patience for slow movies. I, I do have to echo your sentiment, though, about the film. I do also think it runs a little slow. It's odd because I'm a big fan of Roger Ebert, and um, I went and I just couldn't help. I try not to read too many reviews before we do this because I don't want them to really color my own personal thoughts. Right. But occasionally I want to hear what Roger Ebert has to say about it. And in his review, which was three out of four stars, he called it fast-paced. I think maybe for the time. Yeah. Maybe for the time this would have been considered a somewhat fast-paced movie. Although there were other critics and people at the time also complaining that it was a little slow. I think most of the complaints about this movie centered around just how the plot doesn't make a lot of sense, or it just has got a lot of holes in it, or it's a little hard to comprehend. And I would share that sentiment for sure. That's something else that I said to you too. I said, you know, I've got a half an hour left and I'm not really sure where the plot is going. Like, Mm. I, I just didn't know... I couldn't figure out what the end game was supposed to be. And ultimately, when it did get to the end, I was kind of like, that's it? (laughs) It's over awfully quickly. Right. We sat through this whole thing just to get to that? Like, I don't know. It's kind of disappointing to me. I don't want to go into it, you know, because it's not a bad movie. I don't think it's bad at all. I think it's, it's competently made. Uh, the performances are fine, and 
it's not like things don't happen. Things do happen. There are yeah. big action pieces, and there are interesting characters. Um, so I don't want to start it out as though I think it's a bad movie, because I don't. I, I just found it a little bit confusing and a little bit slow. But those are my biggest complaints, really. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Me, me too, I would say that. The movie aspires, to, like I said earlier, it kind of aspires to be pretty big and globetrotting. I, I thought it was really funny, the, the opening scene, the title card comes up and just says, Middle East. <laughs> like, yeah. like Middle East is a country. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter, apparently, to the directors or maybe to the audience. It's it, We're just going to have a desert area. There are going to be terrorists involved. You know, it's the Middle East. <laughs> right, right. But um, Kirk Douglas comes out of the swimming out of the water with a kid, and it turns out that this is his son. And I say kid. He's, he's an adult. He's an adult yeah. kid. Probably, is he supposed to be 19, 20, 21? maybe yeah that's what i'm guessing like maybe just out of high school would be my guess his name is robin and kirk douglas's character's name is peter and there's this scene where they're they're you know like they race like they're competitive but it's all in good fun they race in the water and then they're just kind of like wrestling around you know very macho kind of stuff and very macho um, yeah (laughs) but but then they sit down at like a like a bistro table like on the beach they're talking and robin is they're going to be moving to chicago and robin's worried about it for some reason and you just get this suggestion that they're moving to Chicago for Robin and he's going to be going to this institute and he's nervous about it. I just won't fit in there. I feel like some kind of freak. What is this? Maybe if I knew what was wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. (laughs) My tool can't a zoo. Now what the hell are you doing? Feeling sorry for yourself? Okay. You have a talent that would shock the hell out of people. But it's a talent that else can be put to good use. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Now, Childress understands this. That's why he wants you to go to this school in Chicago. You meet other kids that are that are special like you. And we find out, of course, later that uh, it's psychic, kind of. It's, it's more uh, about telekinesis, and they call it biomagnetic energy or, or something like that. And then there's also another guy there named Childress, played by... John Cassavetes. Yeah, John Cassavetes from lots of things, but I, I always remember him as the husband from Rosemary's Baby. And you can tell right away that he's shady. There's something going on with this guy. And out of the blue... There's this huge terrorist attack, and it's a it's a huge like action sequence with machine guns and explosions and boats. And right away, I, I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, it's gonna be that kind of movie." <laughs> uh-huh. It happens uh, after the boy Robin uh, walks away from the table along with Childress, and Kirk Douglas is still sitting there, kind of finishing his wine. And it seems like they're targeting him. It becomes kind of obvious that they're targeting him at the table. And so uh, Childress is pulling away Rob, and he's not letting him go back uh, to help Kirk Douglas as everything's kind of under siege. I keep calling Peter. Peter's his name. And he goes into this big sequence where he runs, and he manages to get away on a, on a little boat and tear off across the water. But then the terrorists shoot the boat, and the boat explodes. Robin's really upset because Dad's dead. Gets pulled away, but of course we see Dad sneak out of the water. And when he looks up, he can see on the wall that Childress is there 
talking to one of the guys who was shooting at him. So he immediately realizes he's been betrayed. He finds a gun from one of the guy's corpses on the beach and shoots up at Childress, and Childress's arm gets injured. Uh, and then he runs away. I don't even know if we get a title card. Years have passed, or anything like that. But now yeah. we're a year. A year has gone by. It's nineteen. It, we started in nineteen seventy-seven. Now it's nineteen seventy-eight in Chicago. Hmm, Chicago, right? Present day, uh, and uh, and we're gonna Chicago. We know is where Robin was going to go. I initially had the impression he was going to a school, but you know, it's it's like you said, it's an institute, and we're at a school, and there's a woman walking along with her friend. Uh, and the woman's name is Gillian. Yeah. Uh, she's played by Amy Irving. Amy Irving is has these phenomenal eyes. This movie, by the way, is so 70s. Like, I don't think any of the women here are wearing bras. The look at the time was very much, like, super skinny. Yeah. And so is Amy Irving. She's super skinny in this movie. She's very attractive. Yeah, she is. She had been in Carrie, too. She uh, played Sue Snell in Carrie. So she and De Palma had worked together before. And they're not at a school yet. Like, they're, we jump from one beach to another. Like, they must be on the beach at Lake Michigan or something. You're right. They're outside this. Well, this, yeah, you're right. You're right. And and they're in bathing suits and they're just walking around and they're talking and like they're studying for exams or something. I don't know. Her and a friend. Some weird guy starts following them and they notice and so then he backs off and we see him call somebody on the phone and he says, I found one. It's a girl. She's a psychic. She can help you. And we can hear that it's Peter on the other end of the line. But we also see that this guy, this weird guy, is being watched. Like, there's surveillance cameras everywhere. There are, you know, guys in suits, you know, watching. You know, when it jumped to those girls, this is one of the things that I kind of take issue with this movie a little bit. For the longest time, it kind of feels like it's two separate movies. Yeah. There's the Peter looking for Robin story, which is what's going on. He's trying to track down his son. And then there's this Gillian story, which is almost like a coming-of-age story where she's discovering that she has these psychic powers. And you know that the stories are going to intersect at some point, but it takes forever. (laughs) It takes until pretty much the end of the movie. (laughs) Right. That's the problem. And it's interesting, but I think... We've already seen Carrie at this point. Uh-huh. And so this part with Gillian, I thought was kind of slow. I, I don't know. And that's unfair. You know, I think you should always sort of take stories as they come at you and take them at face value. You're supposed to, as an audience, and this is an interesting thing maybe about commercial film and about art in general, is, you know, people always make movies with this idea that you're coming in clean, right? Like you can hit the reset button on the audience. They come in and they see this fresh story. And I think as a filmmaker, your feeling is, all right, we're going to tell this story from the beginning to a blank slate. And actually, audiences come to movies knowing the actors, having seen trailers, seeing stuff about it beforehand. Maybe they came to this movie because they were interested in seeing what else Brian De Palma is going to throw at them. And so, you know, for this reason, lots of times directors like to shake it up a little bit. There's the one side of Hollywood where we give them more of the same, but we put new twists on it. And then there's this other side, this auteur side, which was really big, you know, especially in the 70s, before we got into the big blockbuster hits. And a guy like 
De Palma is very much an auteur where they always want to surprise the audience. They don't want to be pigeonholed and boxed in. So uh, on the one hand, I think it's kind of surprising that a guy like De Palma would go in and in a way tell his Carrie story again. In another sense, I feel like, uh, and it's not really a Carrie story. I mean, she's not, the setting is different and things are different, but it's still this girl coming to terms with her psychic powers. Right. And it seems like, you know, today this would probably be called a spiritual sequel. Yeah. You know, most of the people who were going to see this movie in the theaters probably had seen Carrie. That's what I'm saying, right? Yeah. And were familiar with the whole telekinesis thing. And so they don't have to take as much time to establish that. And it is different in that in uh, Carrie, that poor girl was alone. You know, she was on her own for so many reasons. And then being different in that she had these telekinetic powers just further isolated her. This movie is different in that this phenomenon is known about and there are professionals in the field and there's this institute where people can go and so it's bigger it's just it's it's grander in scope yes I, i don't know i mean i think it works fine and you could you could easily watch this without having seen Carrie and have no problem following what's going on. Right. It's just almost as though this whole telekinesis thing just doesn't seem like as big a deal. It's a big deal that these certain people are special and there are people out there who want to find them and utilize them for their own purposes but it's not as big a deal in that, oh my gosh, what is happening? No, that you know they they get it. You know, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Everyone's cool with it in a way, or they're they're open to it. There's right, a, right. Well, and and another problem that she seems to have is that she can't control it so well, uh, and that sometimes when people touch her, she sees visions of them. And this is explained, I think, by a, a person. Uh, there's there's a kind of this institute visits their school it's the paragon institute and it visits their school and into one of their classes and they have this elaborate setup way too elaborate really but okay it's a movie <laughs> right <laughs> that they're using to demonstrate brainwave activity and they have a girl attached to an electrode attached to a train that's on this this giant train on this big table that's going around in a circle. And the woman explains that uh, the the woman's brain waves are controlling the train. So the stronger her brain waves, the, the faster she can make this train go. It's not just that you can make things move or whatever, but there's also the imprint of all of history floating around us in this psychic magnetic uh, field so that people can even get visions of the past and maybe of the future because it, who are able to tap into this energy field that everything leaves right. behind this imprint. And this is pretty typical stuff too. I think it's really funny during the sequence then, of course, you know what's going to happen and indeed it does happen. Who else wants to volunteer and get hooked up to this thing? And sure enough, the woman zeroes in on Gillian. Hey, why don't you try? Okay. She clicks it on and immediately the train starts going fast and faster and faster and faster. And I was wondering, is this a class about psychic phenomena? Or is this just something that the Paragon Institute brought in? <laughs> I have no idea. I, you know, I couldn't figure out why they were there either. Um, maybe it's a psychology class or something. I, I have no idea. But yeah, not, so the, the train goes so fast that it crashes or derails or something. But she Whoa. also <laughs> has a, a vision of a bloody face, which 
frightens her. And then we cut away. You know, we're, we're constantly cutting back and forth between these two stories. We actually skipped. There was a whole other big action scene where uh, the suits you know, whoever they are, find Peter in this rundown hotel. He sees them coming, so he goes out the window in his underwear and, like, parkours across the street. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And ends up in this, you know, uh, these other people's apartment. Then there's, you know, this whole scene where the the two primary residents it's this middle-aged couple and they're they're set up to be goofy you know he has them tied up and their elderly mother is like pampering him and giving him cookies and stuff might as well just leave them there they ain't got anything to say i want to hear i've heard it all before peter uh that's your real name that's right can't see a reason why you'd make up lies to tell me. I don't matter anyhow. I wouldn't lie to you, Mother Knuckles. You know that. Then I hope you find your son. He's alive. I'll find him. And if the feds get in your way, shoot him. Just shoot him. It's all they deserve. And it was played very much for comedy. Like, yeah. I was very surprised by how comedic it went in this moment because it never really takes that tone again. But it was kind of cute and funny. I I mean, I enjoyed it. (laughs) But you're right. It's so out of place in this movie. It, it, like suddenly uh, we're in this hilarious little domestic scene. She's made him breakfast and she's chatting with him a mile a minute because he'll actually respond to her. Well, and- yeah, and he disguises himself in this ridiculous disguise where <laughs> like he uses white shoe polish to whiten his hair and he puts on glasses and he shoves like a couch cushion under his shirt. Um <laughs> And and doesn't even conceal it well, like no. it's sticking out. Like it's it's the silliest disguise, um, and it doesn't even work. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. And this institute must be really well funded because they have surveillance everywhere. Yeah, just dozens of guys in suits and sunglasses, like positioned on streets and in buildings. So everywhere Peter goes, he's surrounded by like 15 people watching him. It's kind of crazy. And then there's a big car chase. Uh, he, he like commandeers a police car with the police in it. And Ugh. now this is also <laughs> kind of comedic too. These two guys, again, they're kind of playing this for laughs too. Not not the outright comedy that the other one is, but they're trying to get something going between these two guys. It's cute and it's a little funny, but. It's also a little silly. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, you know, I don't know. There's a little bit of hammy acting going on here between these two guys. But anyway, you know, there's this long, long action scene where there's this chase in the car. And I honestly didn't even understand this scene too well because at one point, and they're going through Chicago, and this is clearly filmed on the streets of Chicago. Yes. So it's it's a cool set piece because they're going under the L and, and in these tunnels and things that Chicago's kind of known for. And then it's because it's night, they're driving basically through, I think it was supposed to be into a construction site or some kind of bridge uh-huh. or something. And it's too foggy. This really, you know, fast-paced action scene kind of peters out into nothing because the car magically drives into this fog and disappears. The others come in one by one and can't see anything and stop. And then, oop, the car's there. 
ha ha. And it's almost like they're taunting these guys, and he's got this little plan. Like, one of them, somehow he tricks one car of bad guys into shooting up the other car of bad yeah. guys. <laughs> somehow. <laughs> but you're right, it kind of doesn't make sense. You know, it seems like the good guy car can just kind of appear and disappear whenever it wants to. And so the bad guy cars, you know, are always taken off guard. And he eventually yeah. dispatches all of the bad guys that are following them. And then, for reasons that I don't understand, okay, so this, uh, the car that he took with the cops in it, it's not a marked police car. In fact, it's just one of the cops' personal cars. And, like, that's part of the joke. He's like, oh, I just bought it an hour ago. Please be careful. Mm -hmm. And so then at the end, for reasons that I don't understand, he just tells those guys, he lets the cops out of the car, and he tells them see Childress ask him if it was worth his arm what happened to his arm Peter? I killed it with a machine gun hey Peter now wait tell Childress to follow me and then he drives it into either Lake Michigan or the river I yeah. I, I don't know uh, but why like uh, that was mean <laughs> I get that either. meanwhile yeah <laughs> back Back at Gilly's school, some girls are, well, one girl, I guess, really, is kind of giving her a hard time about, you know, oh, so you've got powers now or whatever. And this girl is played by Laura Inez, who went on to do a very long run uh, on ER. I wouldn't have recognized her. She was so much younger then. And then one of the other random girls just sitting at the table is Daryl Hannah. And I kept looking at her like, why do I know that girl? She's so familiar. And I couldn't figure it out for the longest time. And finally, uh, apparently for both of these women who went on to have big careers, this was their first uh, appearance in a feature film. But um, so this girl played by Laura Inez is, you know, just being your typical mean girl, uh, taunting Gillian. She says something like, you know, prove it. Read my mind is what she says. And Gillian basically says something like, I don't think you really want me to do that. And she's like, what do you mean? Why wouldn't I want you to do that? And Gillian says, well, I don't think that you would want everybody to know you were pregnant. So the girl freaks out. She's like, how did you know that? Um, And she grabs Gillian by the wrist. And Gillian is visibly upset. And she says, let go, let go, let go. And it's because this other girl starts bleeding. Like her nose starts bleeding. And I don't remember. But this is the side effect of Gillian's powers, is that I don't know if she affects the energy around her or what, but for whatever reason, she makes people bleed. Uh, And later on, when she's talking to the professionals, um, they tell her that everybody that you come in contact with in one of these episodes is going to bleed. Some people might bleed a little bit. Some people might bleed a lot. And that is not an exaggeration because some of these people, like, (laughs) spew blood from every orifice when they're in her presence. And so obviously she's upset by that and wants to get some answers and also... Um, wants to be able to control that, which is what leads her to looking into this Paragon Institute, I guess. Then Peter manages to catch up with this woman named Hester. And we have seen Hester. She was one of the people from the Institute at the school. 
and it turns out that he knows her. He, she's like a former girlfriend of his or something like that. I'm really not sure where that relationship came from. Did they ever explain their backstory? I don't think they did, but the impression that I got was that he sought her out and that initially it was really just kind of deception. Like he um, established a relationship with her because he wanted some access to Paragon. And because she worked there she could be his access. But it also appears that over the course of their relationship, they really have developed feelings for one another, and he does have feelings for her. Um, Because later on, (laughs) spoiler alert, she dies, and he's sad. (laughs) (laughs) And he... And he feels guilty. He feels guilty for getting her involved. He feels like it's his fault. I mean, she's a pretty young person, and he's clearly a lot older and they have you know they have this moment in the back of the van where it's clear they've just had sex you know it's this post-coital sitting there he's staring off into space and she's cuddling up to him and and (laughs) i was like ah i don't know i mean it's fine you know whatever but he was almost old enough to be her uh her dad at least (laughs) at least her dad and he was (laughs) carrie snodgrass actually um you know, we've we've run into her before. She was probably most famous, I think, just for having a relationship with Neil Young uh, yeah. during one of his kids. But she did some acting work. She was on TV and in some movies. And we uh, have talked about her before because we did a movie called Trick or Treats, a god-awful movie that was all sort of filmed on weekends by this guy, this director. It was kind of a side project. And it was all filmed in her house. Oh, right. I had forgotten about that. She had a little bit part to play in it, but mostly she just provided the house. So Now, she kind of comes in the middle. She's our connection, really, because yeah. she's at the Institute, and she's getting to know Gillian and getting Gillian's trust. At the same time, the Institute is the same place where we find out, well, it was pretty obvious, uh, that his son, Robin, was taken. And he's trying to get back there and figure out what happened to Robin. So she's the connecting tissue kind of between them and the magnet that is drawing these two, these two stories together, more or less. Right. But it right. certainly takes a while. <laughs> it does. Uh, yeah. And, and Gillian kind of goes to Paragon on her own. Um, yeah. And there she meets a couple of doctors. There's Dr. Lindstrom, who is a, a woman doctor. And then there's uh, Dr. Jim McKeever, who's played by uh, Charles Durning, mm. who has been in a million things. But I always think of him. He was uh, the mayor in Best Little Horace in Texas, and he's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And he can sing. But And, and they, she goes there, and they're very nice to her. And it seems like, uh, you know, it's a nice place. Um, They're putting her up in this nice suite, and they say they're going to help her. And it's hard to tell, or at least it was hard for me to tell, whether or not they were being sincere in their kindness and generosity, or if they had their own personal motives. Um, as As it turns out, Childress has his thumb on this institute somehow and for some reason. I don't know. I don't even know. Does he work for the government? Does he work in some sort of private sector? I could never figure that out. Is he just some rich guy who has interest in this and who can afford to pay hundreds of like spies to hang out all the time? I never really understood who he was or what organization he worked for. Did you? 
It's hard to say because I don't think it's ever made clear, but my presumption was it had something to do with the CIA because um, Peter is a former CIA agent. Okay. And so I figured that was their connection was somehow in the CIA. And then, again, this is just, I think, my mind putting it, you know, trying to fill in the blanks more than anything else. I figured this was part of some offshoot kind of relationship, part of a CIA kind of telekinesis psychic program that they might have. Because he does make some comment later about weaponizing these people, but that's much later in the movie, and it's never really clear, yeah, what's going to happen. It's it's really just like he's the bad guy. Right. And the Institute, you're right, also comes across as being under his thumb. It, it, the Institute itself isn't necessarily sinister, except for the fact that in some way they're they are cooperating or have been cooperating with this guy. But the guy who runs the Institute has serious qualms about it. And right. he and Glenstrom have this interesting conversation by the fire where they're deciding what to do with her and, and how are they going to protect her. And it's, it's funny because I think it's cute when Gillian comes to the Institute, there's this almost cliche like... <laughs> montage? <laughs> montage, yeah, where it's like she's having a sleepover here. Yeah. They're running outside. They're playing frisbee. They're skipping around. They're eating. They're playing pizza. video games. <laughs> yeah. Video games. Playing with a dog. <laughs> <laughs> I had to laugh. I, that was, that also felt, I, I don't want to say out of play. It just seemed a little silly for something Brian De Palma would do. Well, I, I think what they're trying to establish is uh, a relationship between Hester and Gillian primarily. Yeah. And Hester is trying to get close to her because Peter is interested in her because he believes that she can help him find Robin. Right. We still don't know. It's unclear to us if Robin is even alive because they keep saying he's dead. Um, and at one point, I think it's after all this happy time, but at one point, um, she's talking with, uh, Dr. McKeever and he's very nice and, and he's consistently nice to her, but she, either he grabs her or she grabs him. I think maybe she teeters on the stairs or something. So she grabs him for balance and she has another vision and it's a vision of him, Dr. McKeever, chasing Robin through the house and up the staircase that they're standing on. And when they get to the top of the staircase, Robin backs away from Dr. McKeever and backs all the way out of the window and she sees him go out the window. It's on the second story, at least. So we we don't even know if he's dead. And at this point, of course, that makes her suspicious of the Institute and of Dr. McKeever. As you said, it seems like an unwilling partnership. You know, it just seems like Childress has the power to make them do whatever he wants them to do. Um, and it seems yeah. like the doctors, especially McKeever, are frightened of him uh, and probably should be. In that, I I didn't notice it in the moment. I didn't notice it until later. But in that montage when they're doing cutesy stuff, there's a, a scene, really, where they're sitting there playing cards or something, Hester and Gil, and Hester's like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had some ice cream sundaes? And, like, she describes all the toppings and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then this, like, the cook for the Institute comes out with this ridiculous ridiculous like sunday bar on a, on, a tray <laughs> on a tray and with like every topping you could imagine and then they proceed to make their sundays and they use like every topping like they just put everything on it which is funny in and of itself but it's even funnier when you realize that the cook is large marge did you catch that 
No, I didn't catch that. <laughs> <laughs> She's Large Marge from uh, Pee Wee Herman. Uh, I oh, love it. I did her, not name's, catch her name's that. Alice Nunn. I didn't oh. recognize her in that moment, but she is. She sticks around. She's there, um, and I notice later, and I'm like, "Wait a minute, is that Large Marge?" And I'm like <laughs> investigating on my computer. <laughs> sure enough. I- I thought that film, that scene was so funny because they're having this conversation, but after a while, you kind of become distracted by these horrifying Sundays that they're putting together. Yeah. They just have every little bit on it. And then at the end of the scene, she tucks into the Sunday and like almost vomits. She's like, this is too much. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I mean... <laughs> It was really funny, you know. Brian De Palma, uh, as the director, he's a he's very much of an auteur. He got a real Hitchcockian vibe, actually. I think to the yeah. way that he films things, and, and and a lot of times it works. Sometimes it's distracting, but nobody's ever going to fault him for not being an excellent director. And every time they film a scene where two people are sitting at a table, he does the same thing in this movie where the camera starts on one part of this table, one side of this table and it slowly pans around to the other side while they're talking. And sometimes they're not done talking by the time it gets around to the other side. So then it starts kind of slowly sweeping around the other way. And, you know, the first one or two times this happened, it started to call attention to itself. And then it seems to happen every single time they film these scenes of two people sitting down at the table talking to the point where it got to the Sunday scene. And I'm like... Here we go again. Camera around the table. <laughs> I didn't notice. There were even shades of Psycho a little bit. He, he likes to film top down a lot, too, uh, just to shake things up a little bit. And that scene where Robin is chased up the stairs and out the window, it's this sort of top down scene, very reminiscent mm-hmm. of the scene in Psycho where Norman Bates' character comes out with the knife and pushes someone down the stairs. I always think it's quite interesting in movies how windows are so super fragile. Right. People never just back out of an open window, which is a lot more realistic. Like, they, he just backs out, breaks the glass, and pains of this window <laughs> as he goes out. <laughs> At this point, Gillian just kind of becomes a pawn. Like, everybody wants her. McKeever wants to tell Childress that, and he does, in fact, tell Childress that um, she's a fake, she's a phony, she doesn't really have any powers. But then there's an incident where Lindstrom is talking to Gillian, and Gillian has these visions of Robin, and she sees that he is alive, and he's somewhere where he's being tested on, and like he's all hooked up to electrodes and computers and all kinds of things while she's in the midst of this vision she's also touching Lindstrom and Lindstrom is bleeding like from everywhere like from her eyes her ears her nose her fingernails like (laughs) it's just blood everywhere I thought that she was dead but we never see her again but they say that she's recovering or something so when Childress finds out about that then he knows she has power so he wants her meanwhile peter is trying to get hester to sneak uh gillian out which she eventually does um and it's you know just kind of this contrived thing where she plays this ruse and she gets gillian out and there's a chase down the street of course because they're constantly under surveillance and there's constantly these guys in suits around and there's this chase down the street gillian ends up meeting up with peter but hester 
Does she get shot or does she get hit by a car? She gets hit by a car, doesn't she? Yeah, hit by a car. And she's dead. And then Gillian and Peter get on a bus like a greyhound to go to where Robin is because Gillian knows where he is now. And they make a point of saying that Gillian and Peter are psychically connected, but they never explain why. I I don't understand. Gillian and Robin, right? Yes, excuse me. Gillian and Robin, the two psychic young people, uh, are psychically connected, but I don't remember them ever really explaining why. Do you? No, they don't really really say anything about it. But before we go on, I think that this scene is really interesting because this whole chase outside happens during the day. And it's all in slow motion. Yeah. It was a very interesting choice. I don't think I've ever seen this kind of a chase entirely in slow motion go on for so long. But I guess maybe it was to distract us from the fact that these guys get away awfully easily. Like for all the fact that these suits are around and all this stuff and there are these cars coming at them and they're under this constant surveillance, they can just sort of stand out on the street and grieve over Hester for a while and just leave after that i mean there's Mm -hmm. these action scenes come in and they're under pressure when it's convenient for but then they can just kind of get away and then they're fine for a while the impression is given that they're all these people are under constant surveillance they're part of this this really sinister and big program but they're able still to move around quite easily when the plot requires it and also i wasn't sure about robin was this another was this like childress's part of the organization that pulled him away from the Paragon Institute? Yes, and that's what I was going to say. We're probably about half an hour from the end now, and now we go to the third movie, which is about Robin. Yeah. And apparently what has happened is they they took him from Paragon um, because he had all this power, and they have been um, testing him and training him to hone his abilities. And it's worked. Like, he... Uh, is is very much in control of his psychic abilities but a side effect is that he has become very edgy <laughs> which i assume is where the title comes from the fury like all of a sudden you know before when we met him in the beginning he was this nice kid um and now He's just on edge all the time. He's snapping at people all the time. One of Childress's people is this woman, this dark-haired woman, and it seems like she and Robin are in like a romantic or sexual relationship, mm. which is weird because uh, yeah. she seems significantly older than him. He's so on edge that she tells this woman tells Childress, "I need to take him on a vacation. He needs some some rest and some some time to calm down." And Childress is like, fine, you can take him for one day. Uh, take him around the city, show him the sights, but then you have to come back. So she does. She takes him into downtown Chicago, and we see him walking around in this indoor amusement park, which I guess was an actual uh, establishment in Chicago. It was erected, I think, in 1975 and closed by 1980 and then torn down by 86. So it didn't last very long, but it was the first like indoor amusement park slash shopping mall. And it makes for a really good set piece. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of all it is. I mean, here's the problem. I think one of the problems with this movie is I feel like we're supposed to sympathize with Robin in some way. But it's hard to because he's a jerk now. 
Yeah, we really haven't known Rob, except for one scene in the very beginning. We haven't really seen him again, and now we see him again. He's a total asshole. So, you know, it's hard to feel much sympathy for him. He's just kind of a loose cannon. And he's walking through this amusement park, and this just demonstrates it. He sees... He sees some Arabs. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he's already he's already ticked off because he saw his girlfriend, I guess, whatever she is. He saw her talking to a couple of other men. Who are they? These are friends of mine from the Institute. Are you planning on seeing them later? No, Robin, I'm with you. Remember? Now, which one are you going to screw first? So then he, he storms off and he's all mad. And you're right. He sees some Middle Easterners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the guys from the Middle East. And we know he doesn't like the Middle East anymore. They get on this spinning thing, you know, that spins them high up into the air. And there's another group of them that are sitting at a restaurant, like on a second or third story building inside this building that are mm-hmm. watching it happen. And he makes, with his psychic powers, he makes it malfunction. And the little chair that they're on fly through the air and through the window into all of the the group of people so i mean these are just innocent people out trying to at first i thought maybe there was a problem like maybe these were bad people somehow associated with the institute but no they were just just tourists yeah just tourists that he tried to kill maybe killed right maybe killed i mean who knows so he's an asshole yeah i mean he's a jerk so it's hard And, and like i thought well you know, when his dad finds him, he'll... Because he thinks his dad's dead, too. Like, everybody's lying to him. Everybody's lying to everybody. Yeah. Um, so he thinks his dad is dead. But I'm thinking, you know, Peter will find him. Gillian will help Peter find him. And they'll rescue him. And he'll be rehabilitated somehow. And so that's what I was expecting to happen. And it seems like that's going to happen. Gillian and Peter get to the Institute. Robin is back there. And he can sense that Gillian is around. And he thinks that they are bringing her in to replace him. So he's angry again, and he locks himself in a room with his girlfriend and levitates her into the air and spins her around and around and around. She dies, doesn't she? It's a really horrific scene, actually. She's got her bleeding somehow, and as he's spinning her around, there's like blood splattering on the walls and stuff. It it looks really brutal, but we don't see like that moment where she dies. We just see her spinning and the blood flying, and then the next time we come in here, like, and see that we, we know that she's dead. You know, that's another interesting thing about this movie is there's there's like so much time goes by and there are these car chases and there are those little moments of comedy and and whatever and then you get these really gory really horrific Mm -hmm. scenes uh that just punctuate it uh every now and then you know like just to compare it with carrie like carrie has one Mm -hmm. you know i mean there are some things you know kind of that happen during carrie but it's all culminating and leading up to the big climax at the end where carrie goes ape and and everybody dies Mm -hmm. this is like boom 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 yeah really graphic so it's odd he's going for this tentpole mainstream kind of jaws killer which is kind of what he wanted to do with this movie that he makes it so gory and it kind of reminded me of a a giallo film like like fulci like with the bright red blood and um, the close-ups on people's eyes as they're bleeding from their eye sockets and stuff. It had that similar style. And and then so he kills his girlfriend, and Peter and Gillian are captured 
um, by Childress's people, and they're brought inside. And Peter wants to be taken to his son, and eventually Childress is like, "Okay, he's in there. You know, go see him." <laughs> so Peter walks in, and he doesn't realize that Robin is levitating above the door. So he walks right underneath him, and then he turns around and sees him. Robin has already killed a couple more guys at this point. And so he turns around and he sees him and he just says, what have they done to you? Son? I know they told you I was dead, but they wanted me out of the way. I never gave up. I kept looking for you all the time. And then Robin attacks Peter yeah. Which I didn't even get, like, because this is his dad. They had a great relationship. He thought he was dead. Here he is. But he just immediately attacks him. They both end up going out the window. And then Peter ends up, like, holding on to Robin as Robin is dangling over the ledge of the house. And in my mind, I'm thinking, the dude was just flying. Like, uh, yeah. why all of a sudden, why all of a sudden now is this, like, precarious? Like, it's dangerous. Like, he's hanging here. Why doesn't he just float? He was just floating. Yeah. I don't get that. But anyway, so he's holding on to him. P- uh, Peter's holding on to him, trying to save him. And Robin reaches up and, like, digs his fingernails into his face and, like, tears at his face. Peter lets go. Then Robin f- falls to the ground, and he's not dead yet. Gillian goes and, like you know cradles him and his eyes glow blue which i think they've done before when he's gotten really upset and then hers glow too which has never happened before and then robin dies and then peter seemingly throws himself off the roof yes and he dies too yeah and that's and that's the point where i'm like Really? Like, this whole movie has been about Peter trying to find his son. He finally does, and then 30 seconds later, they're both dead. Like, yeah, that it just seemed like such a weird end to that story. Yeah. Very unsatisfying. And, and I mean, I mean, I guess it defies your expectations. Like you said, you're expecting them to have this reunion, and Robin's like, oh my gosh, you know, you're, you're dad, you're alive, and... Dad's like, son, I always knew you were alive. You know, you'd, you'd think they would be... And then together, maybe, they would do something. But the point is, again, the movie's The Fury. Right. Robin is just over the edge. And he's uncontrollable and not in control of himself and probably doesn't even recognize his dad, whatever. Right. Uh, and that's it. I mean, like, that is basically it because... Well, there's a cap scene. There is a cap scene, and, and I'm going to get to that. I guess what happens is that Robin transfers his powers. I, in, uh, that's the impression that I got. Yeah, into Gillian. So the next morning, uh, Gillian is in the bed of this place uh, after all of this. Childress comes into the room. He comes in, and you know he's nice to her, and he's reassuring, and he's like... Everybody, you know, was wrong about me. I never had any bad intentions. I just want to help you. You know, I, I, I wanted to help Robin. And, and so he paints himself to be this benevolent guy. And it seems like she falls for it because um, she, like, embraces him and then kisses him. But I guess it was a trick because uh, his eyes start to bleed and he gets up and he's blind and he's stumbling around the room and um then 
she blows him up with her mind. And that's the end. <laughs> yep. He, he explodes. explodes. And, and you get to see it like ten times because we, we see it from all the different angles. I guess the first time they filmed this scene, it didn't go quite right. And uh, the body parts weren't flying in the directions they were supposed to. So it took them days uh, to get back to this scene because the room was a big mess. They had to clean it all up and try it again. But yeah, he explodes, and this, again, for a mainstream movie, this is, uh, I don't know, I guess it was the 70s, you know? There were Things were different then. But uh, it's pretty gory. Yeah, it is. And that's just it. I mean, we don't know what happens to Gillian. We presume no. that she has these powers now, and I guess, presumably, she can control them now. Um, but, but, you know, so it's... who knows? It's a little unsatisfying, because she just met this guy. She didn't really know this guy. Like, this guy wasn't the one who was really on top of her the whole time. Robin is the one who should have killed him. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know? Right. He's Robin's mortal enemy and Peter, and the two of them just die. Uh, and it's just up to her to kind of avenge it for them. So she does. Right. She blows him up. But, like, her rage, I maybe it's just a manifestation of... Peter's rage, maybe, I mean, I, and Robin's rage. I guess is is like this transference, maybe kind of transferred a bit of his essence into her as well, and maybe that was is what was coming out. Because, like I said, from a plot standpoint, from kind of a character development standpoint, for her to be so angry that finally she blows somebody up, he's not the guy I would have thought would have gotten it. But he deserved to get it because he is the mastermind, apparently, behind everything bad that was happening to everybody. So exactly. But we're not too sure how or why. So there's just a lot of unanswered questions, and it's it's just a little bit like, oh, okay. I mean, by the time the end of the movie came, I was like, you know, it was a, it was an all right movie. You know, nothing yeah. nothing wrong with it. Very well made. Oh, the score. John Williams did the score. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's good. It's really good. And he wrote it intentionally. Uh, to try to mimic Hitchcock scores. And it sounds good. You know, right from the beginning, uh, from the opening credits, you can tell that it's it's going to be a good score, and it is. Well, and I would say it elevates the movie, but honestly, like, Bar- Brian De Palma elevates the movie. I mean, his camera work is fantastic, and the acting is, is for the most part, except for some of these big parts that get a little hammy, um, the acting is pretty good. It's just, as a story, it's just a little boring for a while because you're waiting quite a while for it to come together and for these questions to be answered. Many questions aren't answered. And then when it does come together, it's all kind of at the end, and I, it's over quickly. And you're just kind of scratching your head. What was the point of this whole journey when it's all just going to end up in tragedy in about five minutes anyway? And, you know... Kirk Douglas is good in this movie. He's a good actor. I'm sure that if we explored outside of the realm of horror, we could find much, much stronger and more compelling uh, performances by him. But, you know, this is what we do. Um, So (laughs) I'm sure this is not, like, his masterpiece. Um, But he is good in it. Uh, with what he's given, his his character doesn't have a whole lot of depth. You know, he he's kind of one note. You know, he's got a singular mission and a singular focus. But he's handsome and charming and uh, intense in moments. And so I still say, you know, it's a good performance. I'm sure not one of his best, but even not at his best, he's still a talented guy and. 
I think that, uh, you know, he will be missed in Hollywood. He hadn't worked um, for quite a long time before his death because he was so advanced in age, but he has 95 acting credits uh, on his IMDb, a couple of directing credits and some producing credits. He, he made a major mark. He will be remembered in cinema history, I think, probably forever. Uh, and that's, you know, we wanted to celebrate him and, uh, you know, give him a little send-off. So that's what we were doing today. And so then, so we did that, as we often do, by kind of crapping on his movie. <laughs> <laughs> His performance was fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why is it that it's because it's horror? Some of these people phone it in, and he wasn't phoning it in. It's just not the best no. movie. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you again for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. If you like this podcast, um, you can just find us online by searching Two Guys and a Chainsaw. You'll probably run across our YouTube channel as well. We have about half of our episodes up there now, so if you prefer to uh, have YouTube going and listen to us, there's no visual there, just uh, our faces frozen on the screen. Feel free to check that out. Uh, We're trying to build an audience there, so if you can subscribe to us there on YouTube, we'd really appreciate it. Also, if you have any requests, we're probably going to enter a series of requests for the next month. So send us those our way to either our Facebook page. Um, you can tweet us now. Two Guys Chainsaw is our Twitter handle. And uh, you can also go to our website. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With Two Guys and a Chainsaw. Chainsaw.